listening to Not Good Enough, an inadequate response to inadequate responses. My name is Mitch Alexander. I'm Tom Lang. And I'm Evie. We've got Isaac in our ears as well, making sure we're all fact check and making sure we are keeping our resumes up to date. And Tom McLean, unfortunately, out on assignment this week, but joining us in his stead in the Tom McLean seat, it's James <laughs> from No Turning Back Podcast. How you doing, man? I'm look. I'm doing okay. Really good news this weekend for people who hate their family and friends, um, <laughs> and so I'm doing okay. <laughs> really good news for people that are ah, damning their way through the whole lockdown <laughs> in Victoria. Uh, yeah, on day of recording, Dan Andrews has uh, come up with a whole bunch of like, you know, like a, you can have a friend over as a treat level four <laughs> restrictions now. You can have a full extra hour outside now. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just a little treat. You're allowed to go to the shops with one of your dogs as long as they stay in the car with the windows down. You can have two dogs if they have cute little outfits or goggles. I feel like the one negative aspect of lockdown that I've realised is that I've started using Dictator Dan almost non-sarcastically now and... Oh, it sucks, eh? <laughs> It's the same thing with, like, just Trump brain. Of just, like, like even, like, hard yes. leftists being like, bye-bye, bye-bye, we hate it, don't we... Like, it's just... Say what you will about right-wing cranks, sometimes their impotent rage spawns some really, like, brain-wormy phrases. <laughs> the uwu voice has become my go-to comedy voice. <laughs> oh, no, I don't want to go jogging. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> but, James, as a as a quick thing, like, you guys are up to what episode this week? Like, I think we... I teams? think it was... No, no, I think we're still, we're still in the single figures. I think this was episode six. We're um we're a very we're a baby podcast. It's so good though because like we've talked before on the pod about all these ones popping up all over the uh, place, like sprouting like little mushrooms in lockdown or out of the smoke filled the smoke fires <laughs> of the of the bushfires. But like, I just I really liked when I first saw your podcast about how similar the naming convention was with just like clearly a whole bunch of like inner city intellectual leftists are really fucking done with all forms yeah. of government in this country. <laughs> yeah. It's just time. It's like it's like what I you know we've tried everything else and now we're podcasting. I figure it's like take post <laughs> I've posted on every other platform. We've got to take posting to the next level. <laughs> the next one we see is just going to be called fucking just get your shit together. Yeah, yeah just fucking it ends on the end with ellipses and that's the whole <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Ah, just ah. Let's start with some goddamn good news. Yes. The Raf Wu have beaten McDonald's in federal court. It's good news. A new union, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, new in the grand scheme of things, have taken McDonald's to court and won because essentially a general manager at McDonald's was being a fuckhead about break time and threatening workers with like, well, if I give you some time to go to the toilet, you might not be able to get a drink and you'd hate that, wouldn't you? And the workers went, I don't think you can do that. And the court went, you can't fucking do that. (laughs) You don't own these people. This win is specifically important because uh, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union is not technically, quote unquote, a union under um, the trades hall. Um, so with the ACTU, they you have to register as a union and um, RAFRU is technically not registered with them. Uh, the retail union that is, is SDA, which sucks. <laughs> Quite importantly, SDA is trying to take credit for this win too, which I am finding oh. very funny. <laughs> <laughs> we 
Which is like fucking Malcolm Turnbull taking credit for marriage equality, which was something the SDA fought against. Like these motherfuckers are so brazen with this shit. Yeah, I particularly enjoyed this week of like Labor rusted ons like Dean Madigan and what have you talking about how how they're so glad that their teenage sons joined the SDA. It's like cool, just so they can get fucked over like the rest of us. Yeah. So for for a bit of clarity, in case people didn't know, um, the SDA are a union that are embedded with Woolworths, with Coles, with McDonald's. They take care of those sort of like 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 early level like jobs for teenagers in a lot of instances and they are in bed with the liberal party and they're fucking garbage and they didn't in any way fight with McDonald's properly on any of these issues that have been going on for years and years now and it takes one one union which isn't officially recognised by the ACTU to go, I, I don't think you can threaten people's toilet breaks and it turns <laughs> out you fucking can't do it. The SDA are sort of a union in name only. They're not really representing the workers most of the time. Well, that's the thing. But like what Evie just said, in name only and also the fact that they are recognised by the Australian Council of Trade Mm. Unions, which is... is one bullshit and two for me it's always that thing of like when you can get permits for a protest it's like no 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 yeah. you know it's not a legitimate or illegitimate protest based on what the fucking government says or what the, uh, the yeah. with unions what the ACTU says if it's fucking workers standing up for themselves and fighting they're a fucking union so yeah. Mitch out. I need to correct something you said there though they're not just in bed with the, the Liberal Party it's the right wing of the Labour Party specifically oh, that good. makes them so <laughs> insidious it's kind of and, the and establishment like the, the worst thing about the SDA which gets my goat and I will rant about it for a long time is that I feel like in this country the SDA and its exposure to young workers who are in casualized work uh, and insecure work the SDA is their first exposure to a union and to yeah. constantly get no help no assistance no sort of protection in the way that you would expect from a union and solidarity with your other workers um, I feel like it's responsible for changing people's minds at a very young age about what a union actually means. And they always have the sort of boomer ideas of like, well, I don't want to pay my dues because the union doesn't do anything for me. Yeah, because you're a member of the SDA who does nothing for anyone. <laughs> it's quite insidious. And it's actually something we might get to in a little bit. Probably the best way to get people to not believe in a union or not believe in other organizations that might do good things is by telling them, or giving them an example of that organization, that's actually pretty shit. So you go, oh, well, here's your union. And they go, well, that's garbage. I guess unions are garbage. Um, I guess we just have to go it alone, which is exactly what, obviously, the bosses want. There was the story recently, we might have covered it a few weeks ago, about an American guy who was like, "We're, we're doing worker solidarity, we're fighting for our rights without a union. And it turns out it was a union. Uh, it just, he wasn't calling it a union because he had bad experiences. It was with Target before. in the US. Um, so it technically was a union, but it was a similar circumstance to this, actually, where the reg- it wasn't a registered union. Their registered mm. union wasn't helping them out. So they said, fuck it. It was we'll a uni- real union. Yeah, we'll unionize ourselves. <laughs> oh. I think, like, the SDA, though, is just a massive branch stacking operation. Like, that's all it really oh, is. God, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, like, and that's sort of what you sucked into, like, this young kids who. And like, I mean, I feel like any union where your employer will automatically deduct your union fees on your behalf <laughs> yeah. is probably not gonna, a very powerful yeah. union. I was going to get to that. Yeah, it's so fucking good. You just have to think for a second about what type, how effective is a union for workers if the employers are stoked for their workers to join that union. Mm. To, like, mm. They're no fucking good. 
No. It's, yeah, it's brazen and obvious. Fuck the SDA. Solidarity with Wafu and congratulations on your big win. Yeah. There's a story in the Daily Telegraph, which I would never recommend you read. But this is not <laughs> behind the paywall. Uh, the story is, this might be the most remote coffee van in Australia. Oh, it's a feel-good okay. feel story about yeah. this. this Human interest story. It, it was portrayed as a feel-good COVID story as well. Oh, yeah. So she runs a cafe and restaurant on the main street of Narrabri in northwest New South Wales. Little town. Um She's got a coffee van. She's increased its earnings. They're doing little stops around all the local businesses, <laughs> bringing the community together. It's been a stressful year. Paragraph, paragraph, paragraph. COVID, struggles, small oh, sounds, town. Sounds lovely. I can't wait, oh. I can't wait for the punchline here. And then you get, you get to the last couple of paragraphs. The local business community has also been a significant factor to her success. Her first stop every morning is at Santos, one of Australia's biggest natural gas companies. <laughs> it's currently invested in a $3.6 billion coal seam gas development in Narrabri, which has attracted a lot of attention around the country and would involve up to 850 wells being drilled across 1,000 hectares of land in the area. Its fate is set to be decided in September, but for Manton, they're simply good customers. <laughs> I'm not done. I'm not done. They're all great people. Even people like Todd Dunn, the project manager. He's from here and his wife is a vet. I know the family. They're good local people. Oh. Oh my and God. right down the end, brought to you by Santos. Oh. It's a fucking ad. It's an ad. It's, it's literally an <laughs> in ad. In the byline as well, it says at the top in very faint fucking font. It's like, oh, written by X and and Santos. And like <laughs> the brazen fucking, <laughs> like just the way it instantly copies and like it cuts to a probably made up, even if it's not, highly fictionalized version of what's happening in the country at the moment. And then just very subtly starts to copy and paste in parts of a press release from Santos, <laughs> yeah. which also my favourite line of that is the um, the development at Narrabee, which has attracted a lot of attention around the country. Mm. Not, it's not a, bringing I'm... up the fact that most of that attention is just people screaming to get the fuck out and go away forever. <laughs> so we have to give some context to this. This is part of what News Limited calls its real-time native advertising strategy, which they announced in 2018. 2018? Yes, December 2018. You know, real-time advertising does happen in newspapers, and I hate it. It sucks. Like, you know, you can see, like, a big commercial at the top of a newspaper article and know immediately it's a press release. But this one is, like, slightly more – I'll read their press release and you can see why it's much more insidious. So this is from 2018. Launching on news.com.au, real-time native allows advertisers to integrate branded storytelling into the news cycle. Real-time native harnesses the attention of breaking news headlines by crafting complementary native content that is in the moment. This agile solution takes native content oh, agile to the next level. I love those. By reframing the typical creation model and strategy to deliver unprecedented cut-through. So, yeah, so it's basically you see the headline, you're like, oh, that's nice, and it's entirely like a, a, an article – with a press release embedded towards the bottom. But I hate this I hate this for <laughs> several fairly obvious reasons. Like, okay, firstly, now obviously we, we know advertisers pay for newspapers. Like, the newspaper's full of ads. It's how the newspaper gets produced. I don't like that, but but when you see an ad and you know it's an ad, like, there's, there's some honesty in there. There's, there's a, fr a, a fragment of honesty. You're given a choice to skip it. Says, it. 
yeah, it says I'm an ad and you can ignore it. But when your story is the ad, but you're not aware of that, any ad for a fossil fuel company is propaganda. It's not an ad. They're not selling you fossil fuels. You can't say, hey, I want to buy some natural gas. All this is doing is saying, oh, maybe natural gas is not so bad. Maybe we shouldn't vote to destroy the industry forever before it kills us. <laughs> and secondly, you're, you're corrupting and subverting the news. Like, the rest of this story is apparently about a real person doing a real thing. But that person is being used entirely as a puppet. And Santos doesn't give a shit about this lady's coffee van. They're just going, we can use you as a little smokescreen to talk about our $3.6 billion development. They didn't talk about how much her coffee van cost. They talked more about the, the details of this gas well. That story probably wouldn't have gotten written if it wasn't for the gas company. So that means, okay, hang on, if I can somehow involve a natural gas company in my business, I'll get a lot more press. <laughs> the journalist isn't then going to go and write a story about Santos doing something bad, even if they do, because, hang on, Santos pays for my stories. They pay for this newspaper, and the public doesn't know what the hell to believe anymore. You can't do journalism. It's fucked. It's bad. I hate it. <laughs> no, it's bad. I also have, like, a more specific beef, which is I feel like that... PR people like need should should have to work for these kind of stories, but instead they're able to just hand over a bucket of cash and get mm. good stories. <laughs> and I just think that's fucking lazy. And I think that they should <laughs> be working harder for this. I've also like I have this question about the actual coffee van itself. Like, is that in itself a PR exercise? Like, is this the coffee, coffee van actually yeah. just a PR thing that exists purely for this story and then is just going to go bust in a couple of months. Yeah, is the coffee van funded by Santos? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which would be like is it chump change for them, right? Like it's, they could do Santos that. Santos may have built that entire town. It's just entirely a Potemkin Narrabri. Um, <laughs> 6,000 people all employed in a facsimile of an adorable country town. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if the, like, the coffee van was like someone who's married to or related to someone that works for Santos. Like it's their little passion project thing. Or yeah, it's like some, That's some so bullshit like that. I bet Todd Dunn's wife isn't even a vet. <laughs> they, just, they put her in that vet's office. She hacked around on a lab door for a while so they could put it in the bloody news report the thing that got me was the soullessness of this like that that because that paragraph you read out they're all great people even people like todd dunn the project manager that's not even said in a proper way it's they're all great people even people like todd dunn like brackets the project manager he's from here and he's like just just to let you know that this todd dunn person is the project manager at the santos like, what the fuck are you doing there's, there's, there's also like there's no way that any human being said he's from here like that's not like that's not a <laughs> yeah. real quote that's a quote that a, someone wrote into a press release because no one actually speaks like that i know the family they're good local people like <laughs> like even worst case scenario you're dog whistling racism but even then I, who gives a fuck that they're local people like okay your whole local area is being absolutely ruined by a gas mine that's a attracting attention around the country <laughs> like, thanks todd dunn you fuckhead like you're oh. ruining the area but he's a good person they know that the idea of like local people is the appeal to authenticity it's like oh well they're local mm. so they know but everyone's a bloody like 
fly in anyway, just for the Santos. So uh, also, yeah. I did no, I did absolutely no research on this. So uh, Isaac, this one's on you. But uh, the <laughs> last line is that uh, she says keeping her doors open through COVID has actually increased her customer base. And I wonder how much of that, if Santos or a parent company or a subsidiary are one of those fucking flesh eating ghouls involved with the whole like the COVID safe app promotion and the getting a COVID normal economy who are just saying like, open up everything right now. We need to get the money back and going. That's how we actually get through the pandemic. Like it's, it's got flavors of that shit through it as well. It's the whole small business association stuff. It's so small I'm, business like Santos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to call out specifically Penny Hamilton, the journalist here. Penny, you might be a nice person and you might do good journalism, but in this case, this is not journalism. This is advertising. And if you have any self-respect or respect for your profession, just just don't. Just don't I know do Penny, that. actually. She's, she's from here. They're, they're, she's she's from here. <laughs> she's good local people. Maybe, maybe you need the money. Maybe it was, you do this or you lose your job. Fair enough. I can't judge you for that. But uh, just... Ah, I, I just can't. Just please leak something. Just find something bad to leak to a real newspaper about Santos. I mean, you work for the Daily Telegraph anyway. I don't know what. Lang, that is a fantastic idea. Like, I understand that journalism in this country is solidarity like a with ble- journalists. Yeah, it's a bleeding corpse, and I understand that. There's there's increasingly less jobs, <laughs> but I feel like if you're going to be employed by News Limited, you have to balance out the karma level somehow. And if you yeah. want to publish like a paid article for Santos, you have to leak shit. That's the yeah. that's the rules. <laughs> Do it under a pen name. Make up a fake <laughs> deep throat kind of situation. Tell us the dirt on Santos and Todd Dunn, please. I'm sure he's done some shady shit. <laughs> um, Isaac's just told us he's he's just looking for Penny Hamilton on the Daily Tele- Telegraph, and we can't find anything else she's written. <laughs> she probably is not a real journalist anyway. <laughs> oh my god, she's on that Twitter account of all those faces created by AI. <laughs> <laughs> This is Penny Hamilton. I like the idea we're going to get to a point soon, like brought to you by Santos and Daisy Telegraph. But on the on that idea of like leaking stuff, one of my favorite things to do, I mean, it will never result in anything, but I feel good about it, is just getting into an argument with brands or politicians on Twitter or Instagram and just writing it directly to the person who's actually taking care of the account instead of the person who you think you're addressing and just telling him to like leak some secrets and then change the password and walk away from the job. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's practice. <laughs> so one of the big things we want to talk about, and the reason we got James in today is there's this thing that we've noticed popping up a bit recently of well-meaning climate activist movements trying to be apolitical. Or even thinking that that's a thing you can do. We don't want to play politics. We're just about making change. And James (laughs) has got the dirt. Um, (laughs) Because, well, I think was the first one we noticed that that kind of made us think about this uh, Extinction Rebellion UK. They were responding to a banner at one of their protests that was like socialism or extinction. You know, go socialism, which is the kind of thing you see at climate change protests, because we all know capitalism is the problem. It's it's the capitalist system that's making climate change worse, um, that has made it kind of the problem that we're facing today. And Extinction Rebellion on Twitter said, just to be clear, we're not a socialist movement. We do not trust any single ideology. And they go into the, the their approach they wanted to. <laughs> we trust the people. Yeah. Chosen <laughs> by sortition to find the best future for us all through a citizens assembly. A banner saying socialism or extinction does not represent us. 
And a lot of people had issues with this. With prayer emojis? With a little prayer emoji. Did it actually have prayer emojis? I don't, okay. I don't object to the emojis. I do. I mean, it's not, it's not the main thing I object to in that tweet. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, following on from that, then the um, school strike for climate, which is the group of like kids going on strike and leading the charge. Australian kids specifically. Who, again, great. Great thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they that they this. had a tweet that said, uh, just so we're on the same page, SS4C does not support socialism, capitalism, or any political ideology. We simply want leaders to listen to scientists and take actual action on climate change. That's it. Climate justice is not political. Politicians have made it political. I mean, like, I feel like they tell on themselves right at the end, right? <laughs> yeah. Because it's like, politicians have made it political. It's like, you can't just wish it away. Like, it is now political. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, like, ex- expand on that then, James. Because the main thing that we had a problem with on this, and what we wanted to chat with you about specifically, <laughs> is that it is political. Of course it's political. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I don't want to... I think I'm more... I'm more angry at XR than, than school strike for climate yeah. um, because, like, I, I just don't want to be mad at 15-year-olds for not having um, <laughs> well-developed political for not um, being jaded, analysis. Yeah. yeah. Um, who, like, you know, like, most, most 15-year-olds haven't read Marx, and that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Little shits. Um. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I noticed the replies for the kids one was, like, all very, like, sort of well-meaning. It's like, I know you think this is the case, but what you need to understand is that it is political. Like, and it was really nice about it. Whereas like all the XR UK replies were like, fuck you, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think it, people, people have been telling off Extinction Rebellion um, in the UK for, you know, nonsense like this for a while. And I think there just, just comes a point where people are pretty sick of having to constantly call them up on stuff. Um, mm. Whereas also, it's also school strike for climate. I think like, I don't know a heap about how they organize internally, but I do get the sense that they're, it's a pretty loose network um and so it's hard to say that anyone like whoever runs that twitter account doesn't necessarily speak for the whole movement and i'm sure it was taken down probably not because they were getting told off by people on twitter but there was probably some stuff that happened behind the scenes there like i you know like you can't paint the whole movement they're they're not that kind of movement that is that internally cohesive Mm. But that's an that's an interesting thing though, is because well, XR to a degree is it's decentralized. It's a it's a big collective of you know you got your vegans, mm. you got your people who are into nuclear power, you got your everything. XR is is they're not focused on a specific solution. That's their whole thing. They're like we just want action to happen, and we think the experts should choose the solution. Well, I mean, they are focused on a solution, which is that citizens' assembly. Like they really, mm. they're putting a lot of stock in the idea of a citizens' assembly as the way to solve the climate crisis, which comes from this like anti-political kind of place. Um, it's, I think, it's a much more common position in the UK than it is elsewhere. Although I see it in other places. Like um, George Mombio, who's a political writer for the Guardian in the UK, has written quite a lot about um citizens assembly he's a big fan of that and he kind of like really does speak for this kind of like is it a bit utopian it's a it's just a, honestly it's just a little bit like white middle class britishness <laughs> um it's the kind of people who do who do a dance with plastic bags for some reason like <laughs> we'll get we'll fucking get to that but so what is a citizens assembly broadly but what how is it going to function in xr's mind it's really it. hard for me to like explain this without coloring it with my mm-hmm. my view. Well, on you it. are on a, you are on a <laughs> podcast, so <laughs> so a citizen assembly. Like the the idea is it's it's you know like they say it's like chosen by sortition, so it's like a jury service. This idea that we will establish an assembly of citizens who are selected at random who will 
make decisions, sort of replace Parliament with this like random jury mm. service almost for running the country. And they, they talk about the words beyond politics. Like that's the way that they frame it. It's like we're going to move beyond politics. And it just doesn't. It's, yeah. it's magical thinking. Like they if that's really your think- first step, if that's what you want to do before you can accomplish anything else, well, you are going to be waiting a while. Yeah, exactly. And it's also, it's like that thing, like we can establish a citizens' assembly, but like politics doesn't just happen there, right? Like they're, they're assuming that the state has a lot of power, that you're going to set up this citizens' assembly that can, that that citizens' assembly will be able to make decisions about how society runs. But like right now we have this problem that like, Capital has all of the power, so you mm. can set up a, a citizens' assembly to run the state as much as you want, but without actually dealing with the fact that the state needs to reclaim some power from private enterprise. And I just don't think a citizens' assembly is not the struggle yeah. that's going to get us there. Politics is is kind of just code for powerful people doing shady stuff to make things happen. Well, that's my mm. two things with that. Is that first off the talk of like we're going to establish a citizens' assembly for public? Okay. What does that mean? How? That that's a political that's a political movement. You want to put something in parliament, you want to give some some form of political leverage to any group, that's fucking political. So you already have to reckon with the fact that even like say for Australia, neither of the two major parties would go for that. However, you can probably guess that the Liberal Party would be less enthused by it than the Labor Party. Greens might be more enthused. So how do you propose establishing that even if it's just on protests going like <laughs> You, you do have to make a political statement then. You have to back political candidates to a certain degree. You have to you have to lobby politicians to make sure a citizens' assembly happens and is taken care of. And then to your point, James, even if you do that, you then also have to change all of the legislation to get rid of lobbyists, to get rid of the financial interests that are taking place in politics right now so that the citizens' assembly can do anything. And all of that is just politics. It's not beyond politics. No. I feel like the entire issue with climate change is politics. The only the only issue with climate change is politics. If there was no politics involved, if climate change was apolitical, yeah. we would have fixed it 20 years ago. We have the science and technology and money and resources. That's the big thing I keep saying is like, it's not science. The science has been mm. settled a very long time ago. It's, it, it's, it's something else. What else is there? It's politics. 100% politics. I think that's the phrasing that the the kids meant to have, like, on their tweet. I think what they really meant to say is climate change is not political in the sense that in itself it's not because... The science that would, is that, not political. Exactly. It's been settled. You know it's true. That's it. It's how people's perceptions of it are political and what they choose to do about it is political and seeking justice for it is political. So, yeah. like, I get, like, if they wanted to sort of call in and say like you know we're a broad church we welcome everyone who believes that you know that we deserve climate justice but mm. of course the intent is not what happened i think yeah. they've you can say we're not excluding any of these ideologies that's sort of different from saying we're not supporting any of these ideologies absolutely yeah and i think they're saying our oh, socialists get out when what they mean to say is socialists are in other people who aren't explicitly that socialist also in. It's like you wouldn't see them calling out someone who's got a banner that says we want more wind farms, even though Extinction Rebellion is not explicitly a pro-wind farm organisation. Yeah. They would want that to be decided by the experts. In, in terms of the calling in thing, um, Keaton Joshi, who's an environmentalist and climate change writer as well, he was talking about like what they could have said um, to make XR at least seem non-exclusionary, which is, as I said, um, we're a broad church. We welcome everyone who wants to fight for climate justice. That's a way to say, you know, you don't have to be um, a socialist to support our views. 
but you know we're but open to having yeah but it helps and we have everyone here and everyone is fighting for the same thing so that leads into sort of the next step of this discussion and James correct me if I'm wrong but then isn't there also a good argument to be made that kind of you do actually sort of have to be socialist <laughs> I mean yes but I think I think the, the, there's probably like a drip feed to be done in that way mm. creeping socialism if you will uh-uh. yeah well I think you've just got to be you, you you have to be political and you have to have a political stance. And I think it's worth like thinking about the history of the climate movement. Like you, you have to put that into context. And I think that for the last 20 years or so, like the, the dominant form of climate organizing has been like apolitical and trying to take it out of the political sphere and trying to say like, this is just common sense. We just need to do it. And the analysis I think is like, that's the fastest way to get there is that if we make this non-threatening to the right then mm. they will pick it up and, and we'll just get this technology and it'll be fine. But I think two things have changed. And one was that the right was fully captured by fossil fuel interests. And so, um, and it makes sense, right? It's business. They're big business and they're some of the most profitable, biggest, most powerful companies in the world. So they fully captured the right and made yep. climate denial a defining political issue for the right wing. Mm. Um, and then the other thing that happened is that you know, 20, 30 years passed and now we don't have time for like a very slow incremental market-based transition. Yep. Like that's just not even scientifically feasible at this point. So we have to be moving rapidly and that's going to require a different kind of political response. Yeah, making something political I see is is like that's a real, it's a strategy. It's, it's a way to silence people and it's pulling out the big guns. Once your opposition makes this situation political, if you keep trying to be non-political, they're going to beat you. Yeah, 100%. Um, and- and once they've made it political, you just got to muck in. Uh, and it, it's it's nice to compare things that are and aren't political is not dependent on the thing. Anything can be made political. In Australia, gun control, not really political. If you go out in the street and say, I don't reckon anyone should have a gun, everyone's like, cool, whatever. Hmm. <laughs> That's not a political statement. That's just the way things are. In America, <laughs> you'd be shot. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like you've got to look at like you know like climate justice as well as a particular, and this is why I think like that school strike one in particular rubbed people the wrong way. Climate justice is not political. Like climate justice is political because climate justice is like a a particular term th- to describe like our mm. response to climate change, which is that like there are many different ways that we can reduce emissions, but there is really a, only a few that I that are just, and we need to be doing that. Yeah. Because the problem is political. Yeah. It's like if you said, I want, you know, I want poor people to have a better welfare system, but I don't want to be political about it. Well, you, the problem you're trying to fix is a political one. The solution has to be political. There are solutions to the problem of climate change. One of them is eco-fascism. Yeah. Inarguably, we could fix the climate change issue through eco-fascism. But that's very But we political. don't want that. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And that's the problem is that any call any call for justice is itself a political call. It's not, uh, unless you want to get into the, like the interpersonal stuff and like theories of justice like that. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about climate change. And I mean, I think as well, this does speak to, and I don't want to shit on the kids because they, they're trying their best and good on them. I was a fuckhead at 15 as well. But uh-huh. this this <laughs> thing of like, I think part of the narrative that has captured these movements is the same narrative that talks about the importance of um, individual action in fighting climate change. And so when everything and like identity politics can play into it a little bit as well, but when you start to see like the vegan movements jump on, it is good. It would work if you see like getting yourself an electric car and solar panels and stuff. That's all good. 
but it just won't fix climate change. And so if your movement is then, if not explicitly calling for those things, but is at least mimicking that type of ideological framework of we're just individuals in for it all together and as individuals we can collectively make change. That's nothing unless there is a political framework to it because that's what a group of people acting is. It's politics. Yeah, and there needs yeah. to be some analysis of where the problem comes from. And I think yeah. that that's the thing that's yeah. frustrating about this is that it doesn't look at the causes of climate change. It, start, it sort of assumes that climate change was caused by like, gases in the air, which obviously at a very basic scientific level that is true, but at a political level it was the, the roots of climate change go back much further into obviously extractive capitalism, colonialism, mm. and you have to be... I think the thing is that like we've learned over the last few decades that we simply can't address climate change without going back and addressing those root causes of the injustice, and which is why like yeah. climate justice is fundamentally political, because it has to involve some addressing of uh, colonial capitalism. <laughs> like you have, to, you have to undo some of that to solve climate change, at least some of it. And yeah. so... I don't know. It's a frustrating position. I think that also it just, ah, I don't know. I just don't know how they think they're going to win. That's the thing that always annoys me. Yeah. Without a, without an analysis of like root causes, prior problems and actual, like a material analysis of what change can look like and how it will be affected. It, what what does a victory look like? Except for if you want to get like super reductive, like you just did. Like we just get the gases out of the air. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, sure, but that's not that's not useful in any in any sort of way. It, I mean, it's genuinely useful to be out on the streets just screaming, "We want climate change action." Like you get enough people doing it, cool. But there needs to be some sort of framework from some groups, like pushing for proper change. That's a larger problem with organisations on the left of organising anyway, is that there usually isn't like a coherent plan as to how they're going to win. I think we should just take after the alt-right and the QAnon black-pilled people and just not have an end goal. Don't worry about it. Just incorporate <laughs> everything into climate action. Whatever's happening, just fucking get angry about it and it's just a big conspiracy to suffocate the planet. Like, Literally it's everything. Like I, get I think like that's the- what we already have. Yeah. Like, I think we already have, oh, no, climate change is bad. What do we do about it? Let's all run in different directions in circles. Like, that's what we have. And that hasn't been working because then you're very easily swayed by people who know exactly what they want and get you to do those things. So then on that, though, like, XR do do some good things. They're not just out there running interference for liberals and, <laughs> like, capitalists. Um, they do do some good things. Weirdly enough, they do a lot of political stuff, um, which seems to be um, unaddressed <laughs> by that that tweet. Um, recently, XR UK uh, blockaded the Murdoch printing presses. And, Fantastic! Um, I love that. Was great. Distribution uh, from going out. Um, XR Australia dumped manure in front of uh, the Sydney offices of Got Murdoch. Pre- yeah, <laughs> nailed it. Jobs done. Um, and then like, and then stop like stopped the bullshit as like a as a as a slogan for that, which is. That's effective. Good. I I think blocking the printing presses is effective. Dumping a pile of shit in front of their headquarters <laughs> feels good. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. sorry. Yeah. When I say effective, I mean just in terms of a protest with that that brings attention to the issue. Sometimes all you want is a protest to either be in solidarity or to air a grievance. And dumping shit is, you know, okay, cool. It's not going to stop anyone from going to work. They just sort of stepped around it. But and like, it gets you on the news, which is nice. Um, yeah. 
And the, the, well, the thing here, and the reason the Murdoch newspapers are really bad is obviously because they are very political newspapers. They very much take a side, and that side is let's let the world burn uh, with the help of the LNP. I want to know at what level the journalists, especially the ABC with their impartiality charter, but journalists everywhere. McLean has railed about this so many times, so I feel like without him here, I have to bring it up. But we are all in mortal danger. It's not just our grandkids and their grandchildren leaving a future for them. It's fucking us right now. We are dealing with it. And also the science has been settled. And also we understand that the solution to this like objectively a moral problem is political. It's been exacerbated for moral reasons, but it is just a scientific issue. At what fucking point will a journalist let go of this idea that the fourth estate has to be as impartial as possible and therefore they can't make political calls for change? We know the problem is political. We know the solution is political. So therefore the journalists have to report objectively that some political actions are causing the fucking problem. I've always wondered that, but my feeling has always been that will only happen when something catastrophic happens. But the problem is, is that I feel like we're in like a frog in a boiling pot of water situation where catastrophic things keep happening and everyone's like, oh no, that's not related to climate change. Let's just like, you know, that was a bushfire. Those happens all the time. Like even this year, you know, the worst bushfires we've had on record you know, we've had smog in cities on the East Coast um, for months uh, that to the point where it affected people's breathing and their livelihood. And yet people still aren't willing to have the conversation. They're still like, you know, there's still Facebook memes about how it was due to greens not backburning or something. Like, I feel like there's a lot of things that are in place that will stop a larger reaction from people saying enough. I think when there's a big emergency, things do happen. I just don't think they're good things necessarily. I think if, if left to their own yeah. devices, you get crisis capitalism. And that's yeah. like during the pandemic here, which was very much in America and Australia and probably a lot of other places, it was exacerbated or largely caused by the kind of insecure work rights and conditions that you see somewhere like Amazon, where workers have to go to work even when they're sick and you've got no healthcare. And yet companies like Amazon profited massively from that often because of those conditions um so a crisis will shift things but it won't shift things in necessarily the right way it just leads to your dictators or your super capitalists i think just a crisis on its own doesn't shift things it creates uh, a moment where things can shift but still requires um action from uh movement and like the problem we have in australia was that we just there the climate movement just didn't have any political power. But the right was, and this is like at the beginning of the pandemic, what was so just demoralizing was just how blatant and open the fossil fuel industry's wielding of their political power was. Like just being able to set up a COVID commission that was just stacked with fossil fuel executives and just watching that play out, knowing that it's just like, well, this is what it's like to not have political power. And I think that the the climate movement and a lot of the left is so used to not being in power that we've sort of fetishized <laughs> it's it. helplessness. Yeah, but we've also like fetishized it. It's like, well, this is good. This is right. We're the moral, we're the moral uh, crusaders. We're the underdogs. Exactly. And, and so the, the, the ambivalence towards pursuing political power is seen as a virtue. And mm, I think for yeah. me, I really want to push back on that, right? Because like that is, if you're like, it's like, I am morally pure but like you're not pursuing political power it's like that's fucking useless that's actually like that's morally indefensible if you're not trying to grab the reins of political power 
to turn this ship around. That's the high road. That's what we saw in America. That's why they've got Trump now is because he was willing to cheat his butt off. And then you've got the Democrats going, oh, we just need to keep doing what we're doing. And we're we're taking the high road. Yeah. And it's like this idea of like, you know, and that's like what a citizen's assembly kind of is the logical endpoint of that kind of politics of like political power in itself is is bad. So we need to set up a system where no one has political power. And I just like that is wishful thinking at, at best wishful thinking <laughs> it's like that yeah that that other soccer team is cheating a lot so once we beat them in soccer then we'll make it so no one can cheat well yeah, yeah but you're never gonna beat them because they're cheating so hard but even that to james's point it's also like that other team is cheating so look we're just gonna come up with a new sport to yeah. be honest <laughs> like, all right well, it's just, you're gonna lose the championship it, well, look, it yeah, worked but- it worked for kerry packer <laughs> but um, I think I think I always love to come back to there's a Martin Luther King Jr. quote that like I think is actually one of his his better ones that I think speaks to this and I, I do really like it, which is the power without love is reckless and abusive and love without power is sentimental and anemic. <laughs> um, and yeah. so it's like power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And that for me is like why like I get really frustrated at this like climate politics that is like ambivalent to pursuing political power because we see what it's like when we don't have it and we need to pursue it and the climate movement cannot do that on its own like it's just not big enough and it will for so many reasons never be big enough just on climate like the political base for that while especially while the world is falling apart and the material uh crises that people are experiencing um are much more pressing than than climate like there's going to be like obviously right now a lot of people unemployed looking for work maybe going to be homeless like obviously like climate change becomes a less pressing concern for them and a less motivating concern which is why mm. the climate movement needs to be political and get their hands dirty on workers rights on mm. housing um and on like the design of our cities which are all things that we need to fix to address climate change it's anyway systemic issues yeah so we need to get our hands dirty there because that's also about expanding the political base for climate action as well so working with you know with unions to get workers' rights as, and to expand you know create new jobs like that's important to solve the climate crisis and also important for building the political base that can demand climate action, which is why you have to be political. So then, like on that, then I mean, let's let's just pivot into talking about the Sunrise Movement, which is that essentially. Yeah, the Sunrise Movement. For people who don't know, the sunrise, I'm assuming there are listeners who don't pay close attention to the intricacies of movement politics in the US. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm very vague on the Sunrise Movement myself. Um, so the Sunrise Movement are uh, they're a few years old now. They came to prominence through an action that they did uh, sitting in Nancy Pelosi's office that um, AOC joined them at that was demanding a Green New Deal. They'd existed for a year up to that point, but that was their big catapult onto like the national conversation. Oh, sorry. Is that the one where Nancy Pelosi got frustrated at a kid? Was that I mean, that one? <laughs> no, no, no. Are you thinking of the um, Diane Feinstein one? Oh, maybe. Because yeah. that was also Sunrise. <laughs> oh, sick. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> Wait, <what>? Fuck yeah. <laughs> Essentially, a, a US politician just like could not keep kayfabe and was just like looking at these people. And this this young girl was like, but we need action now. She's like, 
well, if you want to just get into politics at my age and then get voted in, then maybe you can do something. And just like, just through gritted teeth, it was fucking... You're not allowed to change the system. Just to intervene there, the last time that happened, Hillary Clinton told a young girl to go and get into politics herself, and that was Ilan Omar. And now she's a congresswoman, so <laughs> it works. <laughs> oh, yeah, Diane Feinstein telling someone to vote for me. Anyway. Getting into politics out of spite. I love it. <laughs> there are worse reasons to get into politics. <laughs> it's the main one. Are there, yeah, are there other reasons to get into politics? <laughs> but, yeah, like that was also one of their actions. So they've, been, they've been very effective at, at these kind of polarising political actions that have been very, very clever, very well thought through. Um, that, that get lots of media attention and sort of expose the the uselessness of a lot of establishment Democrats that like they just don't have a plan and it's just putting a lot of pressure on on the Democratic Party and on particular politicians and they've also backed that up and this week's a really exciting week for this because they've backed that up with some real political organizing um, and electoral organizing. Um, and their work was largely responsible for what got Ed Markey, who was the author of the Green New Deal uh, resolution, re-elected uh, in Massachusetts Senator. Um, and that was based on, you know, he was being challenged by the Kennedy um, guy. <laughs> some some, some pale Kennedy. Kennedy. The, the, Ke- <laughs> the Kennedy pudding. And, yeah. <laughs> And you know they 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 basically are the reason that um, Ed Markey was able to hold on to his Senate seat through running a bunch of very very effective ads that they made for him, as well as thousands of of young young people mm. making phone calls and and knocking doors and and campaigning for him. So, you know they're they're wielding real political power. They're making the Green New Deal uh, a election winning political issue, um, yeah. which is very very smart. And they're yeah so they're that's who the Sunrise Movement are, and they're. Uh, they're only like yeah three or four years old, and they're already absolutely um, mm. wielding proper political power, and that's because of their analysis of like the Green New Deal. Like you need to bring climate change yeah. in with other issues. You've got to pressure politicians about it the way that they get pressured about things like taxes or you know uh, guns or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's something that's like it's because it seems like it's such an obvious point you almost forget to make it, but the Green New Deal promises a better world which so mm. much of climate politics doesn't. Like, we, we're all, like, um, you know, I, I have this, like, beef about eco-austerity. Yeah. Um, where it's, like, this idea that the world has to, like, we have to make a lot of sacrifices. We've got to not have our PlayStations and our yeah. plastics and things. Yeah, and so, and, like, to actually talk about that and go, like, there might be things we have to give up, but there are so many more things that we could have. And for the vast majority of people we can make them make their lives better than they are now and solve yeah. the climate crisis. And so I think that that's like, yeah, it seems like a really obvious point, but actually like the Green New Deal was that, that is what made it, um, I think, so revolutionary was that, and what captured people's imaginations is the idea that we can solve the climate crisis and improve our lives. And they made a really delightful little animation, which I highly recommend <laughs> everybody watches. And and also from that too, now the numbers have come out and big business is also just sheepishly going, yeah, it'd make us a lot of money if we all just went to green technology and gave people jobs. Yeah. We, like The pandemic has shown out that the Green New Deal and things like it would just would be effective economically on their analysis. Yeah. yeah. The only thing holding them back is ideology now. It's that a lot of the sort of right-wingers all over the world have pinned their reputations and their communities and their jobs to 
we will fight climate change at any cost. I mean, we'll fight climate change action at, at any cost, um, regardless of if it makes um, any money or loses yeah. jobs or anything, just out of pride. Oh, it's also just that they've made it a culture war. Like they were yeah. ve- like that was the thing that they were yeah. very effective at. The 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 PR industry that works for the fossil fuel um, lobby is has been very good at making like you know. And they, they did the same thing in the US as here. It's like, this is like real gritty Americana jobs that, you know, and like that blue collar, you know, authenticity. This is a real job. And then like just making it like, and you know, we saw in the election in Australia, it's like Queensland v Victoria because Queensland is like real Australia and Victorians <laughs> are all like, um, you know, whatever they think. Victorians are. <laughs> it's actually like, that's, I think the failure of like being able to convey the Green New Deal as much in Australia is because of not like, um, making use of that culture war aspect is like you have to make like you have to make climate jobs seem really sweaty and manly too. Well, I, I like <laughs> the idea of there being like like Evie's got this game where it's like bank, mortgage, or uh, insurance. And, like, and, and super. you got to pick what the ads going to be super. selling. <laughs> I like the way you could also do one where it's eat, like it's iced coffee or mining industry. <laughs> yes. Down now now now. Are you a bloke? Down now now. You don't suck, do you? Down now now. And then it's either like. Dare iced coffee or Santos with a coffee van. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I think the problem is in so many of these situations that we've let the fossil fuel companies and the right wing choose the battleground. Mm. Yeah. They've created the culture war. And unfortunately, because of the. And then um, we fight it on their terms. Yeah, the tentacles of News Limited into politics and um, general culture, culture discussions in Australia means that the culture war is fought forever and on every sort of inconceivable uh, platform as well. So, like, things like masks become the culture war as well. Yeah. And if you're forced to spend your time debunking things, like saying, no, wind turbines don't make heads explode, um, (laughs) then you don't have any time to say, hey, there's a lot of jobs in the Green New Deal, or hey, wouldn't it be nice if we had fish Mm. uh, in the water? Um, That just reminds me of like maybe about 10 years ago when Joe Hockey was talking about uh, wind turbines. And it was just like every single thing about wind turbines was focused on how much Joe Hockey personally found them ugly. Yeah. And Tony Abbott was the same too. Like it it wasn't all about like how they could, you know, bring in energy or the jobs it could create. It was all about how ugly they shit. Yeah. Or yeah. Or they, they give you syndromes that don't exist or whatever. But you also have to look at like the way that wind farms are are rolled out in Australia, right? Like they are private companies for the most part. Mm. Um, they don't create a lot of jobs, and they're not great. They're they're often contracted. They're not great. They're not union jobs, where a lot of fossil fuel industry jobs are well organized, unionized, well paid jobs. And they're often not even implemented in the best ways, or in the best yeah. places, or even in ways that keep environmentalists happy. Yeah, one hundred percent. And and they piss off local community because they come in there as a as a big company, mm. um, build a thing. The community just has to deal with that thing there and get very little out of it. Which mm. is why, as well, you need to be political about this. Like these should be publicly owned. These communities that they are built in should benefit in real material ways from having those wind farms in their communities. There should be real proper unionized jobs, and the only way to guarantee that these are well paid unionized jobs is to make them public service jobs. Yeah. Yeah. So this is why you have to be political about. It. You can't just go like, I don't care as long as the technology happens, because then you you hit political problems, and then we keep getting surprised that we hit political problems when we take when we're <laughs> oh no, this is not a political issue. It's like, of course, it's a fucking political issue. Where we Everything build wind farms is, yeah. is political. <laughs> like communities, we make it political. Shout out to the Hepburn Wind Farm, which is community owned, um, oh, and yeah. that like the Hepburn Shire 
is I, disclaimer, did a little bit of work for them, helping them develop some education activities, but I also got to see all of the materials and research they've done. They have friggin' done the homework. They are trying to get that whole Shire being like uh, carbon neutral. uh, Basically, they've they've crunched all the numbers. They've figured out where their emissions are coming from. They've figured out what they need to, to do to get them down. This is the kind of thing that we need to be doing everywhere and they've got their community owned wind farm which means that it is basically just creating power and money for the community um without involving any external people really really good stuff yeah it's a great model so the last thing i want to touch on i think is looping back to the sunrise movement but this is instructive for all of our talk of how leftist movements need to be political sort of like this is a warning about what to expect, what we have to actually deal with in the next decade as we as we move forward. So you mentioned how um, James, the Sunrise Movement, uh, helped Ed Markey get re-elected. He helped write the new the Green New Deal. He's a sort of progressive candidate and all the rest of this sort of stuff. Well, and he he will be Sunrise more movement. progressive now. Is also the the yeah, other point, exactly. right? He knows yeah. that his base, like whether he personally mm. is progressive or not, doesn't matter because he now knows he's there because Sunrise put him there, which means he's going to yeah. have a real accountability to them. Yeah, he's it's fucking smart politics. It's yeah. like the guys who get the, put there by the NRA and now they owe the NRA their jobs. Exactly. I, so that's, that's another good thing about like, you know, like where to vote for and how to push politically. I've read a bit about Ed Markey as well. Like he's made some bad decisions and bad policy in the past. So he's not like his hands oh, yeah. are fully clean. But the fact is, is that people can be pushed to act yeah. in mm. your interests. But so they, they, the Sunrise Movement also endorsed another candidate by the name of Alex Morse. And right before the election, they endorsed him, they started campaigning for him, and then Morse was quote-unquote embroiled Mm. in a scandal about the um, personal conduct of a political figure, um, about him being like a sexual creep and using Tinder and blah, 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 and just being a a gross man. And as a progressive movement, and as you would want in those sort of situations, more or less, Sunrise unendorsed him like super quickly, as soon as that sort of stuff came out. They actually, uh, they didn't. They actually were very smart. They because a lot of that political scandal, right, was proven to be bullshit by the Intercept. Well, that, so, so this is this is what I was getting to. They initially made a statement talking about like, look, we want to distance ourselves from this. We don't like it all, all the, all the, all this much. Mm. And what ended up happening was it was revealed that the entire scandal was fabricated by other Democrats that mm. wanted political points and staffing jobs. And then so the Sunrise Movement later had to essentially go back and re-endorse Morse. Yeah. Well, they were quite smart that they never quite... They were like, we're going to put the campaign on hold. We're going to wait. Because I think they smelt bullshit too. And they were smart about not immediately disendorsing him. Which was good. Because like less than 24 hours later, that would be like, oh, okay, all things good. We can keep campaigning for him then. Yeah. So so specifically, there was like, you know, the Sunrise Movement, Massachusetts Coalition, which was a group of local hugs. They voted to unendorse Alex Morse. And then the they also continued to oppose his opponent. And the Sunrise Movement largely had an extra thing. But the, the basic point is that not only was that whole thing fabricated, by other bullshit political players with bad intentions, just enough of it was muddied that the Sunrise Movement then lost momentum on that campaign. So by the time it all got cleared up, they'd lost even just losing a week in campaigning because of a bullshit, uh, like, confected political problem, potentially caused... And Alex Morse ended up not winning. And I don't know how much of that you can say was specifically because of this and specifically because of the campaigning. Certainly but wouldn't have helped. Exactly. 
The main mm. thing is that, and so, so uh, the the um, Sunrise Movement were on the Deconstructed podcast talking about how that for them was a very like uh, illuminating moment where they've just gone, we will very, we w- we'll be looking at these sort of things when they happen in the future very carefully and specifically and making sure that we are getting properly vetted, vetted evidence, that we are standing by people and like... Not to point out the obvious, but I have a big bone to pick with uh, alleged liberals... Uh, like weaponizing me too in order to take down their political oh, yeah. enemies. Like fuck that! Oh my god. Yeah, I that's, can a see whole, a, that's a whole other. Thing, I can though. see a lot more of that happening in future. So <laughs> oh, I feel like yeah. It's well, I think I think the playbook's going to be fabricated anti-Semitism claims mm. and fabricated me too claims against progressives, which I think will be. Um, I think that's going to be the playbook now. Like they've yeah. seen it, they've yeah. seen it work a yeah. couple of times. There's no way they're not going to try it again. Yeah, and I think yeah. the. This is something that I find myself uh, telling people a lot, like in the context of education, but obviously also in the context of politics, is that whenever you're trying to uh, make climate action or push for any useful climate action, you are up against the largest, most well-funded, most like widespread and insidious misinformation and political campaign that possibly the world has ever seen. Like you cannot go in there unprepared and you can't also expect that uh, that the information is easy or that it's getting out there. Like, um, if you if you tell people to go and do their own research or if you, if, if you expect teachers or people to be able to just, like, figure it out themselves or, or look things up, you're hoping that they winnow out those useful bits of truths or those useful solutions in among an absolute mountain of really professionally made garbage. Um, <laughs> so much I'm, garbage. Yeah. Um, and I, I slightly want to tangent into education, if I can, just, just quickly, because I think the political thing is one aspect. Um, but for a lot of people who might not be out there getting involved in politics for whatever reason, and everybody should, you know, keep an eye on politics or get out there and do protests when we're allowed to. Um, but if you're even just talking about this stuff with your friends or, or if you're teaching people or if you're trying to learn things for yourselves, this is something I've noticed among teachers and among well-meaning lefties and environmental kind of people is there is this reluctance because it's been made political. There's a reluctance to talk about it. There's a reluctance to, to look at the political side of things. Um, and this is, I really enjoyed in the No Turning Back podcast when you guys looked at the, um, the Craig Rucastle show, uh, what is it, Planet A. <laughs> Fight for Planet A. Right, where they acknowledge, okay, climate change is a problem. How do we fix it? they always hold themselves short of going, maybe we need political solutions. There's like, there's an invisible wall there because everyone goes, oh, well, we shouldn't get political. We're a TV show or we're a documentary or I'm a teacher. I can't get political. I mean, in that in that specific instance, that's because of the ABC Charter of Impartiality. Exactly. Which is They've what gone, I mentioned we before. Of like, it is impartial to say we need political action. We just do. But then you always find this really telling little awkward moment when they go, so why aren't we... <laughs> building renewable energy why aren't we implementing all and this is something i got personally asked when i taught this stuff years ago i i would teach about renewable energy forms and a kid would say so why don't we have these things and i go ah oh, all right that that is the actual question and if you can't answer that question <laughs> why haven't you read marks yet yeah, no, if, you can, if you can't answer that question, you find yourself like Craig Rucastle going, oh, for some reason the government isn't doing anything about it. 
dust your hands and you walk off. And it's like, that's the entire problem. So you have to be willing to get into that uncomfortable zone where you go, this has a political basis. And if we're not examining that and if we're not teaching it and if we're not talking about it, you're actually not addressing the real problem. It's the, it's the Troy McClure thing of just like it cuts. It's like, so, Craig, why aren't we building those things? And it just cuts to the Troy McClure face. And then well, that's all the time we have today. <laughs> For sure. You're stuffing around doing the exact same thing every time of going, oh, well, while someone else works out that political stuff, we'll, yeah. um, mm. we'll be working out our recycling and trying to buy an electric car. But then as soon as you go to install a solar panel or something, politicians come along, they slap it out of your hands and they go, no, we've just implemented new restrictions. You're, you're not allowed to buy electric cars here. You're not allowed to recycle or whatever because they've made it political. Of course. So that was my rant for the yeah, day. Good rant. If you're a teacher, you don't even have to say the word politics. Just say the word systems. Examine the systems. <laughs> and if the kids say it's the bloody Morrison government, you don't have to say anything. You just go, well. <laughs> but I think as well, like, right, like po- politics so often gets reduced to just like the political parties bickering right and so you'll go back to like well morrison's just an idiot like if you don't actually talk about the political motivations and you see this a lot right it's like well morrison's an idiot and everyone who votes for him is just an idiot he didn't independently decide to do this yeah exactly like there's and like and the labor party is just as beholden to fossil fuel interests as the liberal party in many many respects and so you you have to talk about politics in a in a much deeper sense than just like lib lib v lab arguing (laughs) and i just think that like i would just love teachers to talk more about actual political reality but i don't know just and that, <laughs> i don't know i'm just like so sick i'm so fucking sick of losing <laughs> i hear i'm so tired we had we had a good couple of weeks there where bernie was winning those were i hold on to those ah uh, the good old days. take me back Halsey. to that nevada win <laughs> yeah, the halcyon the halcyon days of 18 years ago <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit, man. That was a fucking amazing episode. Thank you, James, for coming on. God damn, dude. That was fucking cool as shit. Um, (laughs) Tell us about um, your podcast. Tell us about Tomorrow Movement. Give us all your plugs. Tell me the whole thing. Right. So you can listen to me with um, some friends, Cam and Cass, on No Turning Back is the name of our podcast. Um, Also, um, I'm involved in an organization called Tomorrow Movement, um, which is... uh, Probably the best way to describe it in the context of this episode is kind of like a baby sunrise. We started at the start of this year um, modeling a lot of the stuff that we'd learnt from our friends over in the States at Sunrise, um, obviously adapting a lot of the political strategy um, to the Australian context. But, um, you know, we're working for good jobs, great public services and a safe climate for all um, and fighting for at the moment uh, the climate jobs guarantee um, is our big campaign. Um, And if you want to get involved with that, that's tomorrowmovement.com. Um, we have welcome calls. So if you like want to just hear a little bit more about what we're up to, we have a welcome call every Tuesday, I think. Um, and so you can, you can find all that on the get involved page, um, on our website. Hell Hell yeah. yeah. Fantastic. I think I'll be, I'll be doing that. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait to get stuck into tomorrow, but yet Lang, you're a bit thick, man. (laughs) I am sponsored by the Tomorrow Movement. Tomorrow Movement's campaign has the success of, has the momentum of a runaway freight train. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> no, it's fucking it's fucking rad. The podcast is funny as fuck. I really love it, and it's yet again, it's just been so fantastic to see yet more aggrieved leftists doing podcasts without any hand wringing. Just like nah, fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking sick. So thanks heaps for coming on, man. It's been great. No worries. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening to Not Good Enough. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at notgoodpod at protonmail.com and on all the socials at notgoodpod. Not Good Enough is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We want to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and recognise that sovereignty was never ceded.